Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Laufer, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to NucleCast. Of course, I am, as always, Adam Lowther, your host. And today we have a great guest, Dr. Wally Clark. Now, you may, if you've spent much of your career in the research and development arm of the nuclear enterprise, you would know Wally because he's been around for more than three decades. He's done a lot, started his career at at Oak Ridge, and then spent the last two decades uh, with the Air Force and the last decade at the Air Force Nuclear Weapons Center. And so he's he's done a lot of things. And we've asked Wally to come on the show to talk about weapons effects because we never talk about weapons effects. So who better than Wally Clark? Welcome to the show, Wally, by the way. Thanks, Adam. But we've, Who we've, better? Who better than <laughs> Wally Clark to talk about weapons effects? So with that said... It's great to have you for the first time on NucleCast. Well, we'll see. I mean, that's up to uh, uh, up to the listeners to see if this is this is enlightening, and I hope it is. So, we wanted you. You've been you've been doing a lot of work here lately, and some series of educational podcasts on weapons effects, trying to help explain those. So. For our audience, could you start off by telling us, you know, what do we need to know about weapons effects? What are the major effects of nuclear weapons or let's say a detonation? Okay, so hmm, most people are familiar with uh, conventional effects, which tend to be the the blast wave, the shock wave, the overpressure that comes when you explode uh, an air fuel bomb or... uh, or any conventional weapon, even as something as small as a grenade. With a nuclear weapon, you get those effects and more, mostly because you're releasing so much more energy in such a little time. So a few years ago, before I left the Air Force, I came up with an acronym to try to remember all the effects that you get. And uh, it's called Bostard Blast overpressure, shock, thermal, electromagnetics, radiation, dust. These are what I call the seven major nuclear weapons effects. Uh, So these are the things that if you were trying to survive an effect, you'd have to make sure that, uh, that you could. So before you can figure out what you need to do to survive an effect, you need to understand them. So I talked about just a second ago about how conventional weapons make BOS, blast over pressure shock. But a nuclear weapon makes one heck of a lot more. So let's look at this. Why do you get the blast over pressure and shock from a nuclear weapon? Either either from a fission or a fusion weapon, you're releasing so much energy in such a short time that you'll you'll generate a temperature like the core of the sun. 
maybe 10 million degrees centigrade in a rather small volume. When you generate that much heat by, by fissioning all the particles in, the, in a bomb and its casing, its electronics, and its, and its vehicle, or whether you fusion them to make he, uh, helium out of the hydrogen, you're going to generate a terrific amount of heat and pressure, especially in air. In space, not really. But in air or on the ground or underground or in the water, you'll generate a massive blast wave. So this high-temperature thermonuclear weapon generates a thermal bloom and a blast wave. So the blast wave will move out at speeds of up to 2,000 miles an hour, which is appreciably faster than the speed of sound, which is around 770 miles an hour. So in effect, if you were uh, 10 miles from a nuclear weapon, the blast wave might get there before the sound did. Not a good day. Uh, so accompanying the blast wave just in front of it is an overpressure wave where the pressure will exceed two or three or even ten times the normal pressure of the atmosphere, destroying buildings no matter whether they're hardened or not because most buildings are hardened uh, for uh, the, the winds in the area. Consider if you lived in Florida, you want your building, your house to be hardened to hurricane-force winds which is under 200 miles an hour. Or if you live in Oklahoma, you want it to be hardened to tornado force winds, which is 350 miles an hour. This overpressure shockwave is maybe traveling upwards to 2,000 miles an hour. So no matter how you build a building, it will fail. So just after the blast wave, which is again preceded by the overpressure wave, is an underpressure wave where everything gets sucked back to the point of origin. So if you've seen any movies of uh, uh, bomb effects anywhere, it's mostly the ones that were taken during the uh, above-ground tests that we used to do at the uh, Nevada test site, you'll see things move away from the blast and then get sucked back. That's the under-pressure wave. And then if the bomb was low enough, you'll get a shock wave which travels through the ground. Blast overpressure shock. These are the, the, the effects that most people see. And by the way, when you have that blast wave go through with the overpressure and the underpressure behind it, anything in the vicinity is going to be moving. So if you've destroyed a building, then parts of the building are going to be flying around, masonry, glass, wood, etc. So if any person is in the vicinity of one of these weapons, not only will they be knocked over and just, uh, by, by the blast and overpressure wave, they will probably be subject to the shrapnel that is created by this. I can see you have a question. Well, so just correct me if I'm wrong, but this blast wave, the overpressure and underpressure, that's about when it comes to weapons effects, that's about 60% of a nuclear weapons. The, the effect, the devastation is about 60% from that, that blast wave. Correct. That's, that's not a bad, uh, a bad uh, number. It's really, it's really difficult to tell. There's so much dependency on, on the weapon itself, the altitude of its release. Because uh, if you think back to what the United States had to do at uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, the, the weapons were released and detonated at thousands of feet on purpose so as to, as to 
maximize blast over pressure and shock on the ground. So that's what they got. And in in those cases, you know, the, this is one of the sort of the misnomers is because of the nature of of Japanese building and construction there, you know, paper and and wood, thermal was responsible for about 80% of the damage and destruction in uh, Hiroshima in particular. And but that's not normally the case in in a modern city. But but thermal is is that then that sort of second major uh, effect from a weapon? Is it not? It is. So somewhere between thirty and fifty percent of the output of a nuclear weapon is X-rays. The X-rays hit hit the oxygen and hydrogen in the atmosphere. And cause that big, massive fireball in the sky that uh, that people familiar with uh, the old movies would equate to a nuclear blast. Then that fireball goes on to create the blast overpressure and shock. So it's really hard to say how much of the effect on the ground is is due to any particular uh, effect, given that they're all so well tied together. But yeah, the, the the thermal is devastating. I mean, the fact is, you you can be up to ten miles away and suffer flash blindness. I always like to think of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis in the movie True Lies, and when they when they they're kissing it, and just as a nuclear weapon goes off, and he uses his hand to cup their eyes so they won't be blinded by the flash. Let me tell you. If you're too close, the photons will go right through your skin and into your eyes. It doesn't matter whether you're looking toward it or not. And in that movie, they were too close. But, you know, it's Hollywood. Well, but fortunately, Hollywood, you know, it's 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 all real, I would assume. But you're (laughs) telling me it's not. So I'll take your word for it. I'll take your word that you know more about this than uh, Hollywood producers do. So that's the T. Was there anything else about the T in Bostard? So it's either thermal or the flash blindness out of the T. That's the, those uh-huh. are the big two. And that takes us on to electromagnetics. And and that was uh, what I worked on for way too long, electromagnetic pulse. And uh, so here you'll get somewhere between 1% and 10%, depending on the weapon system. Uh, output in gamma rays. You get a lot of things out of uh, out of a weapon. It's a, but we'll talk about the radiations in a minute. But the gamma rays will impinge on atmospheric molecules. Again, the oxygen and the nitrogen, and they'll release electrons. They'll strip the electrons from the oxygen and nitrogen, and these electrons will uh, preferentially uh, go toward the Earth. And they'll and they'll they'll trans they'll actually travel in a spiral manner like a corkscrew toward the Earth. And this change in motion, this circular motion, circular downward motion, actually, um, will generate an electromagnetic pulse. And and here again, Hollywood, I'm sure that you'll be surprised by this, <laughs> gets this all completely wrong. I know in a in a recent uh, movie on. Uh, uh, what is it, the Black Panther, he managed to have some sort of small electromagnetic beads. Well, luckily there is no such thing. But electromagnetic <laughs> pulse 
is really bad. And in the first podcast I did for, uh, for the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, I talked about that. that. There's three main effects. The first effect is E1. And, and E1 will upset electronics. And you think about your, probably not your phone, probably not your car, but the cell tower, sure, it could affect that because you've got a lot of electronics and a lot of metals which will act as antennas to bring this electromagnetic pulse into the electronics. This is bad. Uh, the second type of EMP, without uh, without uh, any special name, is just called E2. You gotta love that. And E2 <laughs> is like lightning. And there's there's it can be a little unique, but we've had a lightning uh, protection in buildings ever since Benjamin Franklin. So it it's probably not a big effect. But the third one is called E3. Now as as when E1 it takes 10 to 20 nanoseconds. E3 goes from minutes to many minutes, up to 10 minutes. And here you have oh, wow. a very low voltage signal that comes down and will connect to the wires that connect the electrical systems across the world. So in the United States, we have close to half a million miles of electrical wire that will act as an antenna to bring this direct current signal into transformers and control systems and destroy or damage or upset the electrical system for the citizens of the United States. Of all the three E1, E2, and E3 effects, E3 can be the one that affects most people, but E1 can upset command and control systems for the military. Let, let me ask you a question about that because I, I don't think I, I don't think I knew that. In the sense that how is, if E3 can last as long as, you know, minutes, many minutes, how is it energetic enough to then, you know, couple, you know, on wires and and then disrupt, you know, electrical systems? And I would have thought that the energy would would dissipate in a faster amount of time than that. So how does it remain energetic enough that it can do that over such a long period of time. Right. So uh, typical electrical, long, long electrical line, which, which it's, it's there to carry 100,000 up to 400,000 volts of alternating current. The kind of current you get in your house when you plug in, when you plug in your TV or microwave. The electromagnetic pulse, E3, is direct current. So, and, and what it is doing is it's attaching to, say, 100 miles of wire. And maybe it's only a millivolt or a per, per mile. But now you've got 100 millivolts per mile. And what it does, is it'll go into the control circuits, especially the transformers in the substations or just outside your house. And, and instead of the electrical current going AC plus 20, 10 volts minus 10, oh, sorry, plus 110 volts minus 110 volts, plus 100 minus 10 uh, minus 110 60 times a second now you put that dc contingent on it so it raises the floor so it'll go up to 210 and down to 100 and up to 300 and down to 200 and, and it just keeps doing that and the transformers are not made to be hardened against this effect point in fact they can be made to be hardened to this effect but it costs more and if you ran a company 
you don't just go out and make your systems as hard as possible. You make your systems to work in the conditions that you expect. And to quote Monty Python, nobody expects, or to misquote them, nobody expects an EM pulse to disrupt their transformers. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> well, we're uh, we're at the time where we have to take a quick break, and when we get back, you're going to finish that. We're at the B O S T E. We've got the the R D left, and then maybe we'll, if we've got some time, we can talk about balanced survivability, which is kind of an important question. So we're talking to Dr. Wally Clark. We're talking about weapons effects, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Wally Clark and Wally, we've got blast and overpressure and shock. We've got thermal. And then we've just talked about the electromagnetic pulse. Was there anything else about that pulse or were we ready to move on? Well, so in electromagnetics, there's a few other things, you know, the static okay. discharge, you know, the electricity will be there to statically charge any of the remaining particles from the weapon system or any dust that's in the air. There's, and the only EMP we talked about was the one that, uh, that, that we're most familiar with, the one that's deleterious, but there's a half a dozen others. I will tell you, uh, the one that scares me the most is what's called enhanced EMP. And there is a thing you can do when you build a weapon to make it produce many more gamma particles. The gamma particles that strip the electrons from the atmosphere that make the EMP. Some people call this enhanced EMP weapons. Some call it a super EMP weapons. The Chinese say they have such a weapon. They say it. More so, the Taiwanese agree that the Chinese have an enhanced EMP weapon. And the Chinese say that they could use these, or they would use these, in any attack on Taiwan. So how bad would it be if the entire island of Taiwan were to lose all electrical generation capabilities? It would be bad for them, of course, because they'd lose command control, communications, radar, who knows what else. It'd be bad for us because a lot of our microcircuits come from Taiwan and you don't shut down a microcircuit factory. Enhanced EMP is bad. Then there's other kinds. There's actually a, a source region EMP. Think about this. If you, if you have a weapon go off at a low enough altitude near electrical lines, it will generate EMP in the source region. Right there, the gamma rays come out strip the electrons from from the, uh, the atmosphere, generate the, the spiraling corkscrewing electrons, which go to a nearby wire. The wire picks it up, carries it off somewhere, 
to affect electrical and electronic systems at range. And the wire has already taken the signal by the time the blast wave gets there and destroys the original part of the wire. EMP used to be studied a lot, and, uh, and, and we tried to harden our systems to it, but not so much anymore. So there's more on the electromagnetics, but that's enough for now. Well, let me ask you a sort of a, you know, because I was, whenever I was the director of SANS, you know, we were at Kirtland and would spend some time at Sandia. And I remember where they used to, where they would do the electromagnetic pulse test at Sandia. So it, I just wonder, are we, so I'm thinking like KC-46, for example, the new tanker. Uh, I don't think that that aircraft is hardened for an EM pulse. And so I, I sort of wonder, are, are we doing what we did during the Cold War to prepare for such an eventuality? Uh so without getting in trouble from the classifi- <laughs> classification police, I, I will say, no, we're not. Yeah. Uh, it was funny. In the, in the last few years of my career, I was pushing for more uh, survivability for our weapon systems. And, and I went out to talk to the folks at Patuxent River Naval Air Station about how they tested uh, their aircraft for survivability to electromagnetics. And and it's really neat. Uh, the air, the the Navy uh, tests every aircraft they get, not one of every kind, every one. And they have a they have a deal with all the aircraft manufacturers. If if the system if the plane survives all their tests, it's accepted into the inventory. And if it fails, they call up the manufacturer and tell them to come pick up their damn plane. <laughs> so I was out there talking to them about how they did their tests and, and we went over it and they said, well, Wally, uh, how come you're asking us these questions? After all, we all used to work for you. <laughs> the air force was the preeminent EMP test facility in the world in the seventies and the eighties at, at Kirtland air force base at the, uh, at the dipole facilities and it, what yeah. is called the trestle. Yep. But we haven't the we the Air Force hasn't been active in that for decades, and it's a shame. I wish we were. Uh, it is given a given a military mission. If you were exposed to a weapon system, you want to be able to survive to complete the mission. Maybe not return to base. Maybe not have electricity on when you get to base. But you need to survive the mission. And testing yeah. for EMP would would make your systems. You would you would have a better understanding of their survivability, and then you could do whatever you needed to do to fix them. But no, okay. in my opinion, the Air Force doesn't do enough. The Navy does, and therefore the Marine does. The Army, yeah, I do not know. Yeah, so we're at the BOSTE. So what's left of our radiation? B-O-S-T-E-R-D. So radiation, there's a lot. You get a lot of alpha particles and a lot of a lot of alpha, beta, gamma, neutrons, and x-rays. That's what comes out. The alphas are helium neutrons. So two two protons, sorry, I'm sorry, the helium nuclei. 
So two neutrons, two protons, they interact with anything that they can come, that they see. So their mean free path or the time before they're absorbed is seconds in the atmosphere. Beta particles are electrons. So um, if there are electrons that were just stripped, maybe they're part of the EMP. And if not, uh, again, they're so reactive, they'll find a local nucleus and grab hold right away. So those alpha particles, for example, they, they would be, they're the least dangerous because, you know, they'll be stopped by skin, for paper. example. Yeah, paper. Uh, so like when, when, when we hear about people, the Russians like to poison and, and they use alpha generators to poison. But the only way for that to be really bad is, is you have to ingest it. Yeah, you have to either breathe it or ingest it. So, so the, okay. same, the same can be said for betas. Then comes gamma. Well, we know what some of the gammas did. Other gammas do things like the gamma knife for uh, helping to with cancer surgeries inside people. This is where you focus gammas into a point. Uh, gammas are rather nasty because they go through a lot of matter. And then when they get to where they're going, they will, uh, they will be injected or inject themselves into the nucleus of an atom. And when they do that, they, there's a huge energy jump in the, in, the elect, in, the, in the nucleus. The nucleus will then either eject gammas at a lower uh, energy, or the nucleus may split into two other atoms. And then you might get a cascade tunneling effect in a piece of material or in a piece of tissue. And then there's uh, neutrons. Neutrons do the same thing to tissue and, uh, and material as the gammas, only 10 times worse. Uh, the problem here with neutrons is that they'll go through almost anything. They're neutral. They have nothing to react with. But when they hit something, say a piece of electronics, the neutron will go in. If it, uh, if it manages to impinge on an on a atom inside, the atom will split into two parts and then those two parts will proceed in the same general direction as the original neutron, and they will they may hit other uh, atoms and cause yet more and more splitting. A lot of this is going to be dependent on the energy of the initial neutron, but coming out of a nuclear weapon, it can be pretty high. Yeah. So that's the radiations. And that's the ones, the gamma and the neutron, you know, that's what we're most concerned about, What what's most dangerous for people absolutely electronics yeah that's the reason well, remember the neutron bomb uh yeah. well maybe you don't you're so much younger so uh, <laughs> there was <laughs> during the uh jimmy carter as president era there was a work being done somewhere by somebody in the united states on on fabricating neutron bombs and the thought was here you wouldn't have you would put much more of the energy of the weapon into neutron production versus uh versus x-rays uh, which make your which go into a big part of your thermal fireball, and the neutrons would kill uh, people, but not necessarily destroy infrastructure. Yeah, that's what, if I recall correctly, those those neutron bombs when we wanted to wipe out the Soviets, but not their tanks and other things. That's what the neutron right. bomb was for. Yeah. Okay, so. Was there anything else about radiation that the listeners needed to know? I think those are the big parts. And then we have prompt radiation that, you know, that's sort of, 
that instant that the bomb blow, you know, it detonates and, you know, that radiation's released. That's the really bad stuff you don't want to be around right then at that, you know, you want to be at a minimum safe distance that allows you to be outside that, that uh, blast zone and, you know, that zone of radiation. And then we, we often worry about residual radiation. Can you maybe give us a little bit about prompt ionizing versus residual radiation? So, so you, you, you've got the correct words. The prompt radiation is that which is, which is released within the first minute. And, and uh, this is the stuff where you're going to have the, uh, uh, some of the radi- radionucleotide leftovers from the weapon system and its carrier uh, will, will mix with, depending on the altitude, the dust in the air, the water, the pollution, the smog, and, and impart their radioactivity onto, onto, these, uh, onto these other material. Um, so the prompt radiation comes out within the first minute and you're right. That's the stuff you don't want to be around. You don't want to be within 10 miles of ground zero. Hell, I don't want to be within on the earth of 10 zero, but about uh, ground zero, but, but you don't want to be within 10 miles. And, uh, and you, and even then you want to be inside and, and even then you don't want to go outside for 36 hours, depending on the wind location. But that prompt radiation is really bad. Uh, the gammas and the neutrons and indeed some of the x-rays, if, if you're within range, will do very nasty things to your body. After Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, people who were just fine for the first week after, after a week later, because of the exposure to the prompt radiation, uh, got sick and died in horrible, painful deaths. Terrible, terrible thing. Uh, that's the prompt, but the residual radiation, which you get from where the, uh, where the molecules of the, uh, of the, uh, of the bomb casing or anything that, that touched the dust in the air, this is where you get the fallout so-called because the material falls out of the sky, uh, for weeks, months, or years point. In fact, that there's uh, radioactive material, plutonium in ice cores, in the South Pole. And and you'd say, well, that's how did it get there? Well, we have evidence that it got there after after uh, all the above ground tests, 650 or so that were conducted worldwide uh, in the, the above ground tests. It, but you go into the ice cores, you can see this radioactive plutonium. And the interesting thing about plutonium, it has half-life of 24,000 years. So it'll be here for a while. Yeah. Uh, if you happen to be in an area where you had some of this radioactivity falling on you and fallout, that could be really, really bad. Again, if you ingest it is the worst, but sometimes just exposure can be bad. Yeah. And then the final one was dust, right? That was our dust. D and Boston. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I had never really considered dust to be a bad, a bad thing. Uh, when I first got into this uh, study, and then uh, I was talking with a fellow named Brett Bordeaux, and he said, well, what about dust? And I said, well, what's the big deal? Well, look look at this. Do uh, You know, I, uh, 100,000 tons of dust from the Sahara Desert is deposited, deposited yearly into the Amazon in trade winds that come from from Africa over to the Amazon. That means there's dust in the air. 
There's dust in the air from <clears throat> from the fires in Canada. There's dust in the air from smog, from agriculture. There's dust in the air. So a weapon goes off. Doesn't matter what altitude, there's going to be dust. Now, a lower altitude detonation is going to give you a lot more dust. Not a good thing. Not only because you're now imparting, I'm going to backtrack a little bit, of radioactivity directly into directly into the ground and the uh, things that are there, but because you're going to generate yet more dust. And this dust can travel around the world in as little as four days. You think about a, a, a nuclear fireball, the mushroom cloud, dust will be sucked up through the stem and into the, uh, into the mushroom cap. And then once it reaches three or four miles altitude, the dust will be carried by trade winds and jet streams around the world in as little as four days. And the dust will be everywhere. <clears throat> so that means that we're all breathing dust from everywhere else in the world right now. But why is dust so bad? So you're in a, you're in a jet engine. Say so you're flying your mission, or you're just flying from Albuquerque to Chicago. That jet engine is picking up dust all the time. That dust will form little tiny craters in the engine because the engine, jet engine, is the parts are spinning really fast. So you'll get little tiny craters formed, or you'll get, or it'll, or it'll, or it'll clog the filters in the airplane. The air that you're breathing might be coming from outside, or it might be electrostatically charged and then just stick to the airplane, which will add to its weight, or it might be radioactive. So you can have dust that's radioactive, electrostatically charged, sticking to the aircraft, clogging your filters. Dust is everywhere, and it's in all nuclear effects. It's even in the blast overpressure and shock. After all, it's that air is moving along the ground at up to 2,000 miles an hour, it's carrying a big load of dust. So you have blast, overpressure, shock, thermal, electromagnetics, radiation, and dust. And we have barely scratched the surface. Man, unfortunately, we're out of time. But, you know, before we go, I, I, I wanted, to, when you said dust, uh, you know, I taught in you know, the University of Arkansas, and there was a professor at, at the University of Arkansas who would measure, you know, he, he was a nuclear physicist, and he knew when all of Russia's tests occurred, and he knew a great deal about them because the jet stream, you know, he, he had his measuring equipment, and the jet stream would come right through, you know, the Fayetteville area, and he would capture it in his filters and he would know exactly what, what had gone on, you know, at Russian nuclear tests in, you know, Kazakhstan, just because of how that dust travels, like you said, around the world. So it, it really is kind of an important thing. And I, I hadn't really thought about it being that important until you just said that. <laughs> so thanks for that. Well, well, we never got to talk about balanced survivability. So, what we'll have to do is on another episode, you got to come back because this has been really an informative episode. Hopefully the listeners, you know, remember your bostered uh, and you'll remember your weapons effects. Remember blast overpressure, shock, thermal, electromagnetic, ah, um, electromagnetic radiation and dust bostered. 
and and you can think about the the weapons effects through that. So thanks for coming on, Wally. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for talking about an important topic. And of course, next time we're going to talk about survivability. You know, we have to worry about. You know, I mentioned the KC-46. You can't refuel aircraft if they can't survive. The bombers can't fly into, you know, in a, an area where there's been a detonation. We've got, it's such an important thing. So that'll be a topic I'll look forward to. All right, you, well. Uh, I hope to come back and help. Oh, yeah, you will, for sure. So thanks to all the listeners. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Wally Clark for coming on and talking about weapons effects. And of course, you know, I never thank Kimberly, our producer. So thanks for, to all the work that Kim does to help make the show a great show. And thanks to you, the listeners, of course, and we will see you on the next episode of Nuclecast. Interesting episode with Wally Clark. Uh, so the Bostard, you know, I, I've always thought about, you know, blast and overpressure and shock is sort of one thing. And then thermal is one thing. And then, you know, prompt ionizing radiation is one thing. And so I had sort of seen it, you know, thought about weapons effects as, as those three things. And so for Wally to break it out into the Bostard and then, you know, to add the EMP and the dust, that was, that was pretty useful and interesting. And then just, I, I thought the way he explained it was, was pretty informative. So hopefully he didn't talk over folks head. If, if, you know, this is weapons effects are not something you think about or know much about, hopefully you'll find that, you know, simple enough, straightforward enough. Um, and hopefully, you know, you have a better sense of, of how nuclear weapons, what those effects are. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumpall. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.